Okay, hello and welcome to another episode of A Woman's Place. My name is Tina and this is Circa who's joining me. Um, we are coming, what date is it today? It's Sunday the 15th of August 2020. Actually, we never contextualize what dates we record the episodes. Um, I want to give a little overview of what we are doing on this podcast for any new listeners. Um which you'll experience today through this podcast. So what we do is we take a moment that is happening in the present and then we attempt to contextualize and um, give you the history of where all of this has come from or the build-up because it's kind of like in therapy, nothing is to do with the, the moment in time exclusively on its own. It always has a root in something. So that's basically the 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 founding is the word tenant of this podcast is to is to kind of root all out the root of the whatever issue is popping up that is bubbling up in society. So today we're going to talk about uh, religious orders, most specifically. Um, do you want to give uh, an, an, uh, an explanation of what the podcast there is today, Circa? Hi guys, so just to say thanks for tuning in, thanks for listening and as Christina said this morning we're kind of trying to peel back the layers of the religious orders in Ireland mm-hmm. and the ones that we hear maybe in the news a lot would be like you know the um, Sisters of Mercy, the Christian Brothers, the Sisters mm-hmm. of Charity um, and many many others and they were all involved with the running of the institutions in Ireland so institutions like hospitals schools and then kind of what we want to talk about today which is like the reformation schools and the laundries mm-hmm. yeah this is going to be and a few parts of, to this theme we're going to do maybe two or three on this um, particular topic maybe more in the future but um, this is the first one anyway, and at, le- at least a three-part, a three-parter. So yeah, do you want to get, what's, what's our first, what are we learning about today, Sirka? Um, so we're kind of starting in the um, 17th, 1600s, and I think everybody knows that Ireland was kind of like this shining sea of, of Christianity in um, the world at the time so like Ireland really never really had a reformation because we we all were like no Catholics cool we're, we're cool with staying Catholic we love it, yeah but the English obviously weren't um, and they brought in the penal laws which basically like heavily discriminated against discriminated against Catholics and didn't allow them to have any kind of upward social mobility or own any assets or it had a lot to do with inheritance laws we've spoken about before in this podcast. But our starting point today is um, around 1820s mm-hmm. when Catholic emancipation happened. So they got got rid of the penal laws, essentially. And that's, that's what known Catholic, as Catholic emancipation means. Emancipation. Exactly. That's what's known as Catholic emancipation. So like this was a time of the Enlightenment and these ideas of kind of liberty, like you have to remember, this is like 30 years after the French Revolution, where they mm-hmm. literally chopped the head off a king, you know. And people were starting to see that actually maybe it was better to be in camaraderie with your neighbours, regardless of whether they were of your religion or not. Mm-hmm. So this kind of started a wave of emancipation across Europe, kind of started with Catholic emancipation and ended with Jewish emancipation in like the late 1800s. But in Ireland... 
this meant that basically there was like a big resurgence in Catholicism, in mass attendance, and in people joining the clergy. So prior to Catholic emancipation, there were only around 2,000 priests in Ireland. Right. And being a, a priest was really dangerous because this was still, there was a death penalty for priests. So the, like revolutionaries the, in one sense. They very much were like revolutionaries at this time. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And there was a bounty on their heads and, you know, they, they went from house to house and hid and went back, went from um, Europe to Ireland to bring kind of news of what was going on. And the Catholicism or religion at that time was kind of something more based in your own faith. So a lot of people wouldn't have been able to attend masses because they would just have been too, too far away or they didn't have a priest to celebrate the mass. So they did a lot of it themselves at home. And there were only around 120 nuns in the whole of Ireland at this time as well, which is crazy when you think that not, say, 50 years on from this, um, the whole kind of religious landscape had changed. So from 1820 onwards, there was a big um, resurgence in Catholicism, and this included the founding of many religious orders whose names we've kind of become all too familiar with. I just mentioned them there. The Christian Brothers, Sisters of Mercy, Sisters of Charity, Sisters of the Good Shepherd. The There was so many founded in Ireland at this time. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, if you're going to be having all of these brothers and nuns and priests, you're going to need somewhere for them to worship, somewhere for them to live. So between... 1820 and 1900, over 1,800 churches were built across Ireland. Um, they were really capitalising on the religious fervour at that time, the, the fervour that came along with being freely able to express your religion. And as well as that, they were using the money from emigrants that had gone to America, the UK, etc., and money from their own poverty-stricken contribution, uh, sorry, poverty-stricken congregation who were socially pressured to contribute. Mm -hmm. So they were so, building gaffs for the nuns, basically. And for the brothers and, and the, the priests priest. and big churches. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and you kind of have to put ourselves in the shoes of people living at this time. Most of them, if not all, were uneducated, illiterate, only able to speak Irish. Um, like, it was very, a very propaganda accepting uh, audience, mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Um, I, I, I read something on Twitter just the other day, and I was like, wow, that's so interesting about the, um, you know, because of the famine and because of everything, because of the high immigration, a, a huge reason people left was because of the environment that was happening. So, like, the, the people that were left over were a little bit more of a certain way, you know, if you were anyway liberal or if you needed, if you had a lifestyle that potentially was, you know, if you were gay, um, you had to leave because there was just no... Um, There's no way for you to live yourself. There's no way to... Yeah, exactly. So you live the, the way you want to. You have a self-selecting um, society that for, the, for more conservatism. But yeah. Definitely. And actually, what happened at this time is that the sermons and the speeches were very much linked around this new Catholic plus Irish identity. Right. So they were trying to kind of say like, you know, 
all the people that died for you to be able to to, to stand here in, in this church today or all the people that died so we could even build this church. And they would have done things like pray for martyrs and pray for people who'd been beatified or had give, been given sainthood. And this basically allowed the church to intertwine being Irish and being Catholic. This is like, this is reminding me of um, America and their freedom and their wars. You know, the, the everyone who's died for your freedom and then like the idea of being at war is just so associated with being, you know, American. Definitely. And if you look at the opulence of some of these churches, you know, or the opulence of some of these um, convents, which, by the way, like nuns and priests and brothers, they all take vows of poverty. And yet, like, you look at their churches and they're Mm -hmm. just unbelievably um, opulent. And this is with money that they've taken from people who are quite poor even if they are taking it from not from their own congregation but from emigrants like the vast majority of those emigrants are still going to be working class emigrants even though they've emigrated and when you think that the catholic church was then and still is today one of the richest institutions in the world Mm -hmm. and they're still taking money from like the poorest of the poor in order to build these churches yeah but what what happened was that we were still under British rule and there was no... What year is this no, now? Sorry, I've got, I've kind of gotten us all off. Um, we're still, yeah, we're still kind of in the in the 1800s, say 1800. from 1820 to 1900. Like throughout the famine and everything else, we saw how much the British cared for us. And um, they weren't exactly building hospitals or schools or anything like that. And so these Catholic organisations took over that through necessity most of the time. So you have people like... Um, Sister Catherine, she founded the Mercy Order and they are a teaching order of nuns and she founded that order teaching like children in like, you know, little back street, little back um, alley schools. Yeah. And the same with Nan O'Neill, who founded the Presentation Sisters, I think. She would have been the same um, teaching children in, you know, tiny room, tiny mud huts. And they filled a gap that was neatly needed to be filled. Mm-hmm. So there, so, there was there, there was you know they provided like a lot of good in the society, like giving charity and education. Education would have been huge for people at that time. Yes, yeah, exactly. So by say the nineteen hundreds, the nineteen tens, we're still under British rule. We haven't um, gotten to nineteen sixteen yet. There were now eight thousand nuns in Ireland mm, a lot more in the space that. of less than a hundred years in the space of just over a hundred years sorry you've gone from around 120 nuns to 8,000 nuns that's bananas mm-hmm. okay Banana and it was nuns. yeah and it was a standing joke and I think it kind of still is a standing joke amongst older people that nearly every family in Ireland had a nun a priest or a brother yeah, I you... know I have relations who are nuns priests and brothers I I don't have any I have one uh, who's a priest and he's quite young it wouldn't be an older generation but there's that like that there's that scene in Father Ted where Dougal I think they bring it up about the the priest you know the 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 uneducated one goes to that you pick one child to educate and the other one becomes a priest and then I think Dougal goes 
wasn't your or you picked the stupid one to become a priest and then I think Dougal goes wasn't your isn't your brother a doctor and so like the you know <laughs> the joke is that Father Ted is that is the, the the priest because he had to be I think that's in it I must find it now um, but yeah that was definitely a motivation for people even further back than this even all the way back to like the first ever nuns who came to Ireland ever in like the 11th century education was always a primary motivation for people sending their kids to these institutions because they would be fed watered educated and they would have some um, some semblance of a life you know they wouldn't have mm-hmm. to struggle for everything particularly if you had as another running joke about Ireland a lot of children Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got seven kids and you send three of them away to be educated, then you have the money to be able to focus on those four. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that that was a big motivator for a lot of parents at the time. Yeah, I think um, you can see a kind of similarity here with what happens in in uh, like in Buddhist countries. They send the young boys off to be um you can send young boys off to be educated and to be reared in um, the... Monasteries. Mon- not, they're not monasteries. Are they monasteries? Temples. For the... um, okay. I don't think they're monasteries. Um, but like, yeah, so it's, it, it's better than it's better than having to struggle. But I'll, I'll just say one thing. Like, yeah, it, like, it gives, you know, it gives, it gives relief for the families, but also, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute, uh, you know, it acts as something, a status, you know, you get status, you know, there's status out of it as well. So there's a exactly. few motivators and this will come into probably play later as we, as we come along and we talk about the other stuff, but yeah. Um, so as I said about the, the, the end of the 1910s, 8,000 nuns in Ireland, a lot of priests and um, it, it's kind of surprising to me that even after like the horrors of the famine and the like godlessness of the suffering, like I, I actually find it hard to imagine that like my ancestors, your ancestors and a lot of people listening to this, they lived through that horror, you know, like they mm-hmm. lived through the horror of literally seeing people starve to death. Mm-hmm. And instead of turning away from God, which a lot of people nowadays would do if something like that happened to them, Ireland turned towards God and became more fervent, more fastidious. I I uh, actually um I have an interesting point here from the Almanac of Ireland. He said that that there in one of his when his podcast talking about the holy wells, he was saying the guy he was talking to was saying that at that time there was or at least maybe it wasn't even the famine but definitely before that. Um that it's it's to do with the weather that or and it's to do and 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 the famine also i think it was the famine actually they were talking about but that they worshiped the other gods before and and when the crop failed it was a way of the you know the cat the the new religious power to see say see look your gods have abandoned you 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 do because they were everything was given by the earth so the earth has abandoned you the gods of the earth have abandoned you so they don't care about you anymore they're gone so you should take on this god so it was like it was a a, maybe a, a moving of from one um god to another you know rather than like abandoning of god or you know what i mean it was like it was a change of allegiance almost Okay, yeah, I can yeah. see that. Mm. And I I think that that point, like, 
is funny because just as I'm saying that I'm almost ready to disagree with myself because I do know that in countries where even now today in like third world countries where there's a lot of disasters and there's a lot of um poverty and famine they they tend to be quite quite a religious people Mm. Mm. you know so Ireland became an extremely religious country and the church essentially began getting its claws into every part of uh, daily life. So they ran all the community events. They ran things like fates and bazaars and the markets and the dancing. There was no um, there was no therapy back then. There was no um, there was no kind of, you know, uh, talking about your emotions. But the priest can't tell anybody what you say in confession. So the clergy were you know, asked for advice, for comfort, for charity. And again, like the the people believed what they were told by the more educated in society. Mm-hmm. They 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 bowed to their greater knowledge, I suppose you could say. Mm-hmm. So then we obviously had the 1916 rising and the 1922 um we had the, the treaty and during all of this the church kind of um still shouted from the pulpit like for example they excommunicated loads of people during the civil war like they and being excommunicated back then you know when you grow up in in a in a world where you really really believe in god and you really really believe in heaven and hell being excommunicated is possibly like the scariest thing that's going to happen to you because that means that you may no longer receive holy communion you may no, no longer receive any of the sacraments and you are not going to go to heaven and but potentially other people would not associate with you very much so yeah mm. um now it didn't have the intended effect here i think because they saw that most of the men saw it as a problem they would deal with later you know we'll deal with the civil war now and we'll deal with the excommunication later right so but it it was still a threat that they made to people mm. so after independence and um all of that after independence and all of the all of the fighting had been done, and uh, we had the first Irish uh, constitution written in 1922, and it stated very clearly, um, all lawful authority comes from God to the people. Right. So in our first ever constitution, it's written there. So between the 1920s and the 1930s, there was um, kind of a lot of flip flopping of governments and things like that, and there were things signed oaths signed by certain members of of our of our uh, political elite to to England such as like um the oath of allegiance and things like that and the allowing of a governor general and but when de Valera came to power in 1932 he began picking apart all of the terms of the Anglo-Irish treaty it just took him a bit longer because he didn't he didn't do it all in one go because he was afraid that that would kind of restart another um war between us so he picked it apart really slowly and he decided that in 1932 on the 1500th anniversary of St. Patrick's there would be a Eucharistic Congress held in Ireland and for those of you who aren't particularly religious a Eucharistic Congress is basically like where all the lads all the lads the bishops the archbishops the cardinals all the lads they all descend on somewhere and this time it was Dublin and they have a load of parades a load of meetings a load of masses a load of public kind of um lectures I suppose you'd say and 
it's a big, it's a way for the church to show off. And it's a way for, De, it was a way for De Valera to kind of signal to the rest of the world that the Vatican is treating Ireland like its own independent country, which it was at the time, you know. So he was trying to kind of, um, he was trying to kind of build up, build us up on the world stage, say. So Obviously all the lads, this, all the lads out for a pray, so. Exactly. All the big lads. bag of prayers. Big bag lads. of prayers in the field. Is there anything to be said for another mass? That's there anything? the crack. Oh God, God I love saying mass. Round and round and round and round. Like, look how good we are. We're such good Catholics. Okay, got it. I don't know if they had the milk float or mm. not. <laughs> I feel like it would have added a lot if they did, but we don't know. So this kind of emphasised um, the the church's position in Ireland and Ireland's position within the global kind of Catholic hierarchy because Dev gave a speech, he emphasised how um, how much persecution the Irish had suffered for their mm-hmm. religion and the church kind of agreed to conveniently forget all of those that it had um, excommunicated. Right. The, like the... The um the church were pro treaty, so the church were on De Valera's side, the side that said we should sign the treaty, and sorry, no, made a mistake there. They were not they the church were on Dev's side, the side that said that we shouldn't sign the treaty. Okay. Okay. And the church. De Valera, wait now, I'll stop you now for because you have all the facts in your head, and the rest of us are illiterate when it comes to history. What party was De Valera again? So prior to independence, De Valera was involved in the 1916 Rising and during the War of Independence, he was involved in the establishment of the first Doyle and everybody there was Sinn Féin. Everyone was Sinn Féin. Okay. Yeah, because that was the only kind of option available to them, I suppose you'd say. And then once the war was over and the War of Independence he, uh, De Valera got Michael Collins to go to London and Michael Collins signed a treaty. Michael and Collins was which party now? Sinn Féin. Sinn All Féin. Sinn Féin. Oh, yeah, everybody sorry. everybody Sinn Féin. So everyone's Sinn Féin, okay. And um, when Michael Collins came back, De Valera said that he had been kind of uh, lulled into a false sense of security by the British and hadn't gotten what De Valera sent him over there to get. De Valera said he sent him over there, you know, to get a full island independence and that's not what he'd gotten and that wasn't acceptable. Well, Collins's argument was that it was a stepping stone to freedom and mm-hmm. couldn't they take the 26 counties now and get the rest later on? And Dev said no. And then obviously the war of independence, the war, the civil war started. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, like Michael Collins and kind of the people behind him, a lot of them were more interested in, um, like they were kind of more interested in, like Michael Collins didn't know what he was doing. You know what I mean? Like he was a fighter. He wasn't a politician. Yeah. He was a an a, an army man, and he, he was kind of um pushed into a position I suppose that maybe he never really wanted to be in the position of a politician but De Valera like from the very start like he knew what he was doing you know what I mean he's a very smart man Like it, it really reminds a, me this dynamic really reminds me of Che Guevara and Fidel Castro and and oh, like yeah? I would compare compare not, just the dynamic rather than like the necessarily the politics but like Fidel Castro like Fidel Castro was very much the leader very much the politician very much knew 
how to get things kind of get things done but also a fighter but then Che Guevara was the was the soldier and when he was put in charge of things he didn't want to be put in charge of and he didn't like he was like uh, I just want like revolution man like he was and both were killed in the battlefield in an ambush so it's just interesting the dynamic and both have been iconized in their countries um and because they died young and they died still the hero rather than living long enough to become the villain you know but and i think in a way that 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 dev the being the only surviving member of 1916 of the of the signatories and everything else you know that gave him such a pedestal mhm mhm like it gave him such a pedestal above everybody else and every, he was so instantly recognisable and everybody knew him and everybody knew what he was um, like everybody kind of they they looked up to him yeah I've gotten you off track now that. from no uh, you're fine from the I'm parties. going straight back okay cool he used he used that um, that that pedestal mm-hmm. to allow him to do things that I think maybe other politicians wouldn't have been able to do. And one of those was to redraft the constitution. Right. Now, he had to redraft the constitution anyway to pick apart the treaty like I was talking about earlier. But he decided that he was going to kind of really overhaul it as opposed to just kind of fixing it. He was going to really overhaul it. So he asked um, the secretary of the Department of Justice and other civil servants to draw up a new constitution. Um, Then this is where the church starts to creep in. So Mm -hmm. there were two kind of architects of the constitution that people um, don't talk about that much. And one of them was Bishop John Charles McQuaid, who was um, not at that time, but he became the Archbishop of Dublin. And Father Edward Cahill, who was a red, uh, Jesuit priest. Now, neither of them were responsible in any official capacity for writing the constitution, but they did bombard de Valera with letters every day, sometimes twice daily, um, with suggestions and viewpoints and documents and references on nearly every aspect on of the constitution. So, and he was very pick, religious, right, De Valera? De Valera was very religious. Yeah, yes, very, religious. very, very religious. So they, they like, um, like we have to consider how much their opinion would have sway over him because of who they are and because of him as a as a religious man. Definitely. Yeah. Um, now, on top of that as well, um, I could be wrong in saying this, but I'm almost positive that De Valera's children went to a school that was run by McQuaid. So Ooh. there was a lot of there was a lot of back and forth there. But and Dev kept this a secret from his own cabinet. Nobody in the cabinet knew this was going on. So that'll tell you like he knew he shouldn't have been doing it, you know. Right. So McQuaid McQuaid told him gave him advice on areas like personal rights, the family, education, private property, religious and social policy, and. He sent an amendment, say McQuaid sent an amendment dealing with orphans and widows, suggesting that um, a mode of settlements, so like giving them money, would do would do much to neutralise a great deal of the venom of communism. So like there's two forces at play here as well. You know, the church is not interested in communism because there is no God. Mm-hmm. So they need to make sure that Ireland's not going to fall that way, like right. other countries were falling that way. Yeah. So... De Valera's policies remained firmly kind of focused on Ireland remaining insular and protectionist. So even his economic, even his economic policies were protectionist, meaning that Ireland didn't trade a lot. Mm -hmm. And this allowed the church to get even more power as there were really very few outside influences to disrupt the systems that they had put in place. Mm -hmm. So we're going to leap forward now. We're going to leap to 1950. By now, there's 16,000 nuns in Ireland. 
That's one for every 218 people. There are now 14,000 members of the male clergy, brothers, priests, monks. That's one in 250 people. They were in every town, village and family across Ireland. From the schools to the hospitals, they preached and prophesied about the dangers of sin and shame. And they ran generation to generation of people out of this country and out of religion. So during this time, there were a lot of um, social policies put forward that the church just beat down. Mm -hmm. Things like Noel Brown's Mother and Child Act, which they were afraid would have been a door to contraception. The Vocational Educational Act, which they were afraid would influence their reformatory schools, which we're going to get onto in just one second. Mm -hmm. Divorce, the rights of single mothers, inheritance. They opposed it all. There was no development in social policy, no intellectuals, no big thinkers like there were in other countries. Mm -hmm. There was no push for sanitation or social care like there was in England. There was no push to make things better for anybody. It was just sweep it off the streets, get them into, get them into institutions. And right. as a result of this, thousands of people that were entrusted into the church's care, social services provision was just a means to an end for them, an instrument for the dissemination of the faith, not a field of endeavour that was worth pursuing in its own right. And... This this is how we get to the situation that we're going to talk about in just one second. I just Sorry, like you to, had no no no. I just like to qualify this because um, it's something Der Der Derek Scally brings up in um, the best Catholics in our in the world, which will be something that we'll discuss in depth in a later podcast. But he talks, he asks the question all the time, and I've listened to a few, few podcasts with him. He's like, who? do you mean when you mean the church? And I feel like when, I think it's important when we, because I think we have quite other, other, othered them very much in our minds as millennials and people who grew up with it, not, it kind of like being a bit separate for our lives or being able to question or whatever. And then obviously the scandals, but ultimately the church, you know, and the nuns and the priests were Irish people. And I think they were. it's really important to remember that they were Irish people creating an Irish church and they had as much, and they as a, an institution had as much control as they wanted. Uh, or didn't want. Or didn't want. Like that it was, like we have this idea that it's, that it's the Pope pulling strings from the Vatican when that is not really no that's not really the not case at all. it was it was irish people wanting power and using religion uh using religion as uh, the catholic religion as a guide and then enforcing whatever they wanted out of that and making up other stuff in order to get the kind of society and world that they wanted um and that was in Ireland. So this is a very Irish, you know, a very Irish Catholicism, not, not, and this is not excusing Catholicism or like, you know, Christianity in general, like obviously it is, you know, it has problems worldwide, but we, I think we have to really remember that these are Irish people, ordinary Irish people who did, who went about this, you know? So I just want to qualify that before we go forward. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think even like as much as I don't like the man, even Enda Kenny said it in the Doyle, he said, you know, like we did this to each other. Yeah. 
like every non priest and brother that did this did despicable things to people like they were born most of like almost all I can't imagine that, that they weren't born here and reared here before they went into those 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 orders you know so yeah. I totally agree with you excuse me <clears throat> so we've spoken before about you know the poor laws mm-hmm. um especially with regard to the famine and for anyone who doesn't know a poor law is kind of a government's feeble attempt at charity where they say that the city council or the landlord or whoever is kind of in charge of that area must pay for the poor misfortunate homeless etc to be taken care of and that takes the burden off the state and onto individuals instead and that's most of the time that's the way the state likes it mm-hmm. so Ireland's um, the, the poor laws allow for the establishment of things like reformatory schools and the first ever institution for fallen women with my inverted commas there was opened by the Church of Ireland in Dublin in 1765 so the first ever Magdalene Asylum was opened by um, the Church of Ireland and the reason it was opened is because there was a belief true or not that there was an increase in sex work around Dublin and this was resulting in unmarried women getting pregnant um, however, this one only admitted Protestant women, and that is um, something that we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. So I'm going to get back to that. Now, initially, the, the women that entered these institutions, they served a term, like as if they were in prison. They served a term of a few years, learned a reputable trade like needlework, sewing, etc., um, and their work paid for their keep. And once they left, they would be given a letter of reference, a little bit of money, a ticket somewhere and the opportunity to earn their own money. So this also applied <clears throat> to industrial schools for boys. They would be sent there, especially if they had um, committed a crime or something like that. They would be sent there. They'd learn a trade and they would move on. OK, so that's 1700s and um, 1800s. And that... <sighs> I don't want to say it worked, okay, but that is not, those are not the the ones that we hear stories about, mm-hmm. do you know? The ones before the, the, the independent Ireland are not the ones that we hear stories about. Now, various laws allowed for the release date between the ages of 14 and 16 years old. So, <clears throat> excuse me again, between the ages of 14, 16 years old, the matron or the master or whoever was in charge of where you were would decide that at some stage between those two years, you would be released, right? Right. Um, so why why were children kind of taken even off them, okay? Um, the magistrate's court, which is the district court today, has the power to intervene in the best interest of the child, okay? And this, this basically means that um, anything that they deem to be in the best interest of the child, they'll be able to prove, especially against like illiterate, poor, rural people or even urban people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, this law, poor, with poor law amendments, also allowed uh, philanthropic donations. Um, so philanthropists would donate either money or land and a order would set up an industrial school or a... Um, reformatory school there so for example the Cork Reformatory Committee which was set up by St Vincent de Paul purchased a 112 acre farm at Upton in Cork and gave it to the Ross Mini in order to run as a reformatory school first and later as an industrial school Mm -hmm. so 
one of the things about this kind of piecemeal way of establishing institutions, um, it had a really uneven geographic effect. So unlike in London, or sorry, unlike in England, where there would be, you know, five in London, five in Manchester, five in Liverpool, and the government knew where they were, and there was a system for if you did this, you would be sent to this one. It wasn't really like that here. Um, if you were from Dublin, just say, you had a much higher chance of ending up in an institution than if you were from uh, Dingle, just for example, because there would have been more people around to notice if you were doing anything wrong or if you had deemed to be doing anything wrong in a busy place like Dublin than in a quiet place like Dingle, you right, know? Right, right, yeah. <clears throat> Now, the funny thing about this is that um, there's a report from 1884. So this is 50 years before we're going to be talking about the real bad shit getting started. Um, there, was, there, was, there was a report where the Irish um, reformatory schools and industrial schools are actually praised by, um, praised by the inspectors. The quote says, the general standard of training across the UK was heavily criticised, except in the instance of Ireland, where they were found to be models of technical and industrial training. Mm. Now, Jane Barnes, in her in her book, Irish Industrial School, says that um, in the early years of these reformatories, providing training to ameliorate poverty, there was a general feeling that this training should not facilitate upward social mobility in any way so, so the children were actually getting too good they were getting too good at things like sewing and housekeeping and the boys were getting too good at carpentry and boat building and so they would be competition for good little middle class and upper class boys and girls or like work and or so, like or like working working class rather than poor like working class yeah, yeah. exactly and um, this is a theme that we we'll see a lot class throughout this entire um journey through the religious orders of ireland class is a very very important theme but mm-hmm. i think it's very interesting to note that the church themselves felt that their training was too good and that it should be dumbed down in a way one thing Derek Scully said on his podcast was Middle Ireland colluded with the church to and I thought that that was such an I had never actually someone on Twitter made made this I can't remember she annoys me but I follow her anyway but she said something like um, she said something like oh it's nice that there's no like class structure in Ireland and don't be silly I, right and um someone like people started commenting like of course there's a class structure she goes oh I just don't think it's in the same you know way this woman had like commented on how scumbag like the scumbags in in Dublin deserve to be like baton charged and like mm. uh, and stuff like I'm like bitch like fuck off but anyway she she said she said this and I just commented on saying um, tr- like, because I want, I, I reacted, you know, and I was like, don't react now. I think you could have, like, you can make a point without being, you know, starting a Twitter dispute. But I said, I just simply said, try to explain um, the Magdalene laundries and the mother and baby homes without a class analysis. And I think that's really important. I think that that was, she liked it. And I, and I moved, made my point and I moved on. But I was just like, like it was, it was too much to try and get into on Twitter to be like, rah, 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 rah. 
but I thought that that was the most succinct and like non-emotional way I could go about making that point but it's I think it's really really important um you know the people who are the victims of these uh these institutions uh are were the poor were poor you know were poor and and working class so um there's that analysis as well Exactly. And actually, I was just about to get on to the point about why children were admitted Mm -hmm. to these reform schools. And I think this, the data is really, really interesting here. So in 1933, which is the same year that industrial schools were abolished in the UK. Yes, I said 1933. Mm -hmm. Abolished in the UK. Wow. What the fuck? Yeah. They found that only 3.5% of those committed to industrial schools were orphans. 3.5%. So that means that over 96% of these children had a living parent. Okay. Okay. So that number one is shocking, right? Now, sometimes they were the children of single parent families. And by that, I mean widowhood, um, either a widower or a widow. And especially if it was a widower, they would be deemed, unless there was his sister or an older girl able to take care of them or he remarried he would have been deemed unable to take care of them right so if he didn't have female relatives that could come and help him or the children couldn't be farmed out to other relatives they were probably going to end up being taken off him even if he had the will and the want Mm -hmm. to take care of them okay uh Sometimes due to poverty, children would have taken to stealing, particularly food, and therefore they would be up in front of the courts and be sent to a reform school. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they were the children of parents who were at work all day and the child, say, would be left alone because the parents didn't have any other choice and they might be somewhere they shouldn't be or do something they shouldn't do. Truancy was another one. Like if you were regularly truant at school, you could be taken away from your parents. Um, And sometimes it was the children of parents who had been committed. But by and large, these children had families, you know, they had Mm -hmm. someone to to go back to. And I just want to bring up one point about, um, there's a documentary on RT, a couple of, um, maybe last year, it was about the industrial schools and the laundries. And it was told the story of one boy who was taken from Dublin um, and sent to an industrial school. And he was an orphan, but had been adopted by a lovely lady who treated him as if he was her own. And the priest came to their house one day and noticed that he didn't really look like their other children. So he queried and the mother told him, oh, no, he's not mine, but he is mine. And a few weeks later, there was a van came. He went and he was put in the back of the van. He was taken away and he never really found out why or what had happened. And he is, he was taken to um, Grange Gorm, uh, somewhere in Grange Gorman. I'm not familiar with Dublin, so I don't know the name of the school exactly. But he ran back to his mother. He escaped and he ran back to his mother. And his mother kept him for a few days until the priest turned up again and took him away again. And in that time, he'd managed to have a conversation with his mother. And his mother told him that she was getting just for example, three shillings a week from the government for looking after him. But the priest, the brothers, were going to get eight shillings a week for looking after him. Oh, my God. And he never did any, like, he he was just totally in the wrong place at the wrong time. And he kept escaping. They took him to Galway and he escaped. They took him to Donegal and he escaped. And every time he made it back home to his foster mother, his his real mother, like his adopted mother. And um, eventually they took him to Baltimore in Cork, which was so isolated that he ended up staying there until he was 16. He couldn't escape. So 
let me just get this clear. The religious orders were monetarily incentivized to have as many children as possible in these yeah, institutions 100%. so that 100%. they would and and they could facilitate through kidnapping or through making up different rules that they could just take children Again, out of. I think this was just the respect and the deference that people had for priests at the time. If the priest told you something, you fucking believed it. You did what he said. But I'm saying, you know? I'm saying that like, I'm, I'm not saying what I'm saying. I'm trying to say is just that like, there was a, 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 an incentive to make money out of kidnapping. Yeah. And like, I don't think that they were going along and like snatching children off the streets or anything like that. But I definitely think that there were quiet conversations in dark corners where priests said, you know, you'd want to do what I'm telling you to do. And they did it because they were scared and, and they felt that that was their only option. and They were afraid. But like, I mean, if you are the moral... If you're the moral judge of society. Oh, we're not talking about morality here. Now. No, but Come I'm on. but I'm saying if you're the moral judge of society and you're also insensitive, like people listen to you, okay? And so whatever you say, you know, you're the moral compass is the proper um you're the moral compass of a society. You say that children like this um or like people like this should be in a home for their sins and also it happens to be financially beneficial you know you know what i'm saying i'm saying like that's like how you make the rules literally like direct provision today like those companies those hotels those catering companies all those shitheads they're all profiting from literally keeping people imprisoned yeah but but i think that we can all i think at least like it's our modern day yeah, but yes, I'm least... obviously not comparing them in 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 that way. I'm only I'm just comparing them in the way that there are people making a hell of a lot of money out of the suffering of other people, and it services them for those people to be in that system for as long as possible. Yeah, I'm I'm just I, I suppose whilst they those companies have influence, um, I think like I think we could all agree that. Yeah, I just, I, I think in the context, like I would never, I didn't know that there was a monetary um, incentive for the religious orders to have people in there. You know what I mean? Yeah, so there was a, for children in particular, because the, the state would have paid foster parents anyway, you know, mm-hmm. like they they always have. Um, so they would have paid the brothers and the priests for a child that needed to be fostered. Right. Like they weren't going to pay them for like a, a criminal child in inverted commas. And they weren't going to pay them for um, a child that um, was there for, for a reason other than being, say, like um, an orphan or a foster child. Right. Because they wouldn't have been paying anyone else for an orphan or a foster. They Sorry, they wouldn't have been paying anyone else for a, a criminal child. You know what I mean? If he had stayed with his family, the government wouldn't have had to give them any money. Right. I'm just saying that, like, uh, like were they, you know, was this same model used to take, to look after the fallen women? No, no, no. 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 So they, they... Kind of need to do a disclaimer here um, for people listening. Um, number one, big disclaimer about the laundries is that many institutions' records were conveniently 
lost or destroyed once the first big scandals started to come out. So there's hard, it's hard to find records on them. And secondly, there is a difference between a reformatory school and a laundry. Right. Girls who were removed from their parents for whatever reason uh, were in the main brought up in reformatory schools, taught a trade or domestic skills and left once they were old enough. Not saying that they weren't, didn't have horrific experiences or weren't abused, but in the main, the girls from reformatory schools left. Mm-hmm. Okay. However, sometimes they were transferred directly from a reformatory school to a laundry. And once they were in the laundry, the the nuns were no longer receiving money for them if they were an orphan or a uh, looked after child. Right. Okay. So the largest um, industrial school for girls was in Golden Bridge in Dublin. And the, the people who ran these industrial schools were cruel and abusive, but most of them did leave between the ages of 14 and 16. Mm-hmm. So what year are we around I, again? So w- this is just kind of in general here. I'm talking okay. about it. Just yeah. Speaking about the kind of, say, 1933, you spoke about that commission that found that industrial schools in Ireland, um, only 3.5% of the people committed to them were orphans. Mm-hmm. So... Throughout the 1800s and 1900s, uh, sorry, throughout the 1800s, most of the women committed to Magdalen institutions in Ireland left. Right. Okay. So sometimes it was four years. Sometimes it was 18 months. Sometimes it was, I don't know, two years. But to a certain extent, the parents and people in the institutions had a kind of a say over when they were allowed to leave. Like they weren't going to be in the 1800s. They were not going to be there for 10, 20, 30 years. You know, they, they, they had a kind of a term to, it's almost like indentured servitude. They had a kind of a term to fill for want of a better word. Mm-hmm. So after independence, um, parents began putting their unmarried pregnant daughters into these institutions. Okay. And at the same time, nuns began taking over lay-run institutions. So some of the lay-run institutions, for example, they were usually founded by like middle-class ladies who decided over afternoon tea that they wanted to help the poor misfortunates. These, some of the, they were very um, divided. So say like the Ulster Magdalene Asylum in Belfast only accepted women under 20. Okay. You know, they, they had their... Um, there are certain people that they would accept, like the Protestant Asylum in Leeson Street in Dublin did not accept any pregnant women. Okay. Um, now, there's a fantastic book on this by um, Maria Luddy, and it's called Prostitution and, Irish Soci- Prostitution and Irish Society. And she says that nuns took over institutions that were generally already in existence. It was a highly practical move to bring the nuns in because they had the personnel, organisation and financial support, which many lay asylums lacked. Mm. Uh, Luddy analysed the entry data of these institutions and found that in 1900, 66% of women had admitted themselves to these institutions because they were favourable over the workhouse. Okay. The second, so this is again just before 1900, so I'm just trying to kind of set this scene here. Um, Most of these women were given um, new names when they entered the asylum and it was kind of like, you know, you're, you're like... Madeline, like Mary Madeline herself, like your sins are washed away mm-hmm. once you pass these doors. That was the general idea, you know. And some of them, don't get me, like the ones before 1900, some of them were actually like, they were more like a training school. 
than anything else. Okay. They yeah. were they were especially the lay run ones. A lot of them were actually really trying to help these women. Um, but after nineteen hundred, <clears throat> this starts to change. Luddy explored the source of referrals and the source of exit. So before 1900, she determined that 52% of women left of their own wish. Some form of permission to leave obviously had to be granted by the nuns. But nonetheless, 52% of the women who entered left no problem. Uh, no, no kind of, um, no appeal, no nothing. They asked to leave or their term was up and they were left. The ones after that then might have had to serve an extra term or whatever, but less than 1% ran away. Uh, Luddy states that right up to 1900, the majority of women could leave if they wished to. Mm-hmm. So, between that, this all begins to change, right? There were 10 Magdalene laundries that operated in Ireland from 1922 to 1996. They were operated by four religious orders. The Sisters of the Mercy, the Religious Sisters of Charity, the Good Shepherd Sisters, and the Sisters of Our Lady of Charity. Mm-hmm. In these laundries, girls as young as nine were locked away and forced into penal servitude. Some had grown up in the care of nuns, some in reform schools. Some were deemed unsuitable for release. I'm taking this all from Maria Luddy's book here. Some had been sexually abused, some had been raped. Some were unmarried expectant mothers or had recently given birth. Some had been cast out of their homes. Some were the children of widows or girls whose fathers had gotten remarried. And a lot of them actually had no idea why they were there. And if you speak to survivors today, some of them will tell you that they have no idea why they were put into the laundry. Right. The laundry served the purpose of containing the problem. Whatever that problem was, or was deemed to be, the laundry contained it. Your reputation and your image was the only thing that matters. Right, yeah, yeah. A lot of families obviously did not want to put give over their daughters, you know, but they were cajoled by the priests and they they had huge societal pressure on them, particularly, like you said about middle-class Ireland, particularly if they were middle-class because your reputation was everything, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the reputation that your family had was everything. And so they would give their children to these institutions. Um, and sometimes I think these families didn't know how hard it was going to be maybe to get them back. You, there are stories of families, of people going up to the gates every week saying, like, I want to see my sister, I want to see my dad, or sorry, I want to see my sister, I want to see my wife, I want to see my mom. No. Yeah. <clears throat> 26% of those committed to these laundries were referred by the state so this means that you were either a ward of the court or that you had been involved in a crime in so- somehow. So that's how you kind of were put in there. And once you got in there, you were going to find yourself imprisoned behind locked doors, barred windows and high walls with glass on top. The women were given no information about when they were to be released. Their hair was cut and their clothes were taken away. Friendships were forbidden. Family visits and all correspondence was monitored. And there was a rule of silence at all times. They were regularly physically abused and especially emotionally abused as well. Mm -hmm. I read a lot of the commission reports in research for this podcast. And I'm not even going to say some of the stuff that I read. But needless to say, it's horrifying. 
Yeah, when you're talking about there, like, I I don't really want don't want to get into accounts either because I like I haven't read any of them because I don't think I'm ready to read them, and also a lot of them, like especially and even from the mother and baby homes, they're not the reports are not. Upheld, like the survivors do not think that they tell the whole story. Um, I'd love to see an alternative report for both, but um, I'll just mention one of the stories that kind of like really encapsulate like how tragic some of these things are. You're saying like, oh, they weren't allowed be released. There was a story of a child who, or a woman who was had given birth in the in a laundry or I think it might have been a home I don't know what it was but he was adopted off to America and he became a priest and he found out his mother was still in a home when he was like 20 something 30 and he came back and he struggled to get her out of the home and it took him ages but eventually he did um so he had grown up and she was like in her, you know, she was old and she'd lived in the in the home all her life. And eventually he was able to get her out. I, I assume because he was also like a priest. This was not, this was not that long ago, you know. Yeah. Um, um, and I think that's like a full circle story of like, just shows you, you know, a lot of these women died in these institutions, like. They certainly did. Yeah. And the women, they worked morning to night, washing, sewing, ironing, embroidering, you know. The laundry that they did, it didn't just come from private citizens. It also came from businesses, religious institutions, government departments like the defence forces, public hospitals, public schools, prisons, Leinster House and the Office of Public Works. The state never regulated the laundries despite its use of the institution both of a pla- as a place of detention and care and as a place of its commercial dealings. Its want- knowledge of the detention of young girls in school going age and its awareness of girls and women working for no pay. Do you want to know the, 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 the single greatest shock that I read from that book? He said that you really, he's like, you know, um, laundries didn't shut down because some kind of moral, um, realization by the Irish public. The reason that the laundries shut down was because of the invention and the cheapness of of comer- of um, of uh, washing machines in people's houses and businesses. That's why yeah, they there's shut down, always the, is because the com- a, it stopped being profitable. I always feel like there's a link, and I I always. I find it so interesting that there's such a link between the liberalisation of women's roles outside the home and the invention of the washing machine. Yeah, crazy. I mean, I mean, the washing machine was was available obviously far before um, 1996 or the 90 or even the 80s. But like in Ireland, in you know, we couldn't afford those kind of things. In you know what I mean? They were expensive machines uh, in the 90s. Uh, they uh, when we started getting a bit more money coming out of recession recession and um you know things were starting to get way cheaper because china started making things um there it was far more readily available but that that was the reason why those laundries shut down like i could i was shook like so shook 
I mean, that's four years from the millennium. Four years. Oh, you ain't heard nothing yet, girl. So the last thing that I wanted to talk about and just have a little discussion about in this podcast before um, we're going to discuss a lot more about the running of the laundries and about kind of what was happening to that money and where was that money going in the next few podcasts. But the last thing that I want to discuss was we talk a lot about nuns and we talk a lot about the girls, um, but there were there were people in these institutions who worked there who weren't really under the thumb of the nun, the nuns at all mm. and those were the men who worked there mm. so the men who worked for these institutions are in these institutions usually as delivery drivers well almost always as delivery drivers milkmen postmen etc a lot of them gave evidence to the commission that they knew they didn't know exactly what was going on there but they knew damn well that there shouldn't have been iron bars on every window and, you know, broken glass on the top of the walls. Um, Some of them spoke of um, sending clandestine letters for the girls. Um, Like one of them spoke of, he he helped a girl escape, he put her in the back of his van and he got her out. But a lot of them did nothing. Mm -hmm. Didn't even, like, uh, the ones that showed up to the commission are obviously going to be very few and far between. What amazes me more than anything else, I think, more than the collusion with the guards, more than the collusion with the government, more than the collusion with the courts and the social workers, was that these ordinary Joe Soaps, because of the power that the church had and the standing that the church had, they saw something that they knew in their gut was wrong. You know, young women who seem to have been in this place for a very long time, who are skinny and pale and scared, and they said nothing. Yeah, I think that um, you will get and into I think, this. Yeah, sorry, keep going. I just, I just think that you know, it's easier. It was easy for people at the time, particularly middle class people at the time, to ignore it because it wasn't on their doorstep. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. the asylums or the industrial schools, they weren't right in front of them. But when you worked as delivery driver, milkman, postman, how could you not... I don't know, like, Jesus. See, I'm looking at it as well from, like, a, a very 21st century point of view. Like, I'm looking at it from the point of, like, why didn't you blow the whistle? Why didn't you go to to, to um, the Irish Times? To. And then straight away, I'm like, no, they never would have, they never would have published it. <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you, why wouldn't you go? Do you know, they, where were they, I think we'll where get, were they going to go even? This this discussion, when you were even saying, like, they did nothing or that it was the church who did it, I think we'll have this discussion when we we talk about the Derek Scally book about how much this is a product of the society and how it's um, not just society, obviously. And Michal Martin got like a lot of flack for saying that in the Mother and Baby Homes report, which I don't think was the time to be having that discussion about the role of society in what happened. But um, it was a collective effort, you know. Um, Yeah. And it's something we c- we'll definitely have to get into because it is it, it I think it, it, it's something that hap- it, it's a it's a trait of humanity that is it's traumatizing on its own like just to be just to be a person who has to 
look the other way um, because they have to or because they, you know, to be powerless to such an extent, you know. Um, but okay. let's just get back. I'm to, not even going you know to, I'm yeah. actually, I'm just going to, no, I'm just going to save it. I'm going to save it all. Yeah. <laughs> just to get back so, to, like, just to get back to the nuns. What, so what do we want to leave people with from, from this podcast, this discussion, because we we got taken off on tangents. We just want to talk about the nuns. Like, who were the nuns? Like, in in post war Ireland, like who were they? They were the daughters. Um, they were the sisters. They were some of the most powerful people. They were some of the most powerful women in Ireland. Anyway, I'll give you that number one, right? Mm-hmm. Particularly the women who ran these orders, like the mother superiors. They would have been genuinely some of the most powerful women in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They they had pretty much complete control over hospitals, schools, etc. Mm-hmm. And that gave them such a societal power mm-hmm. that they got away with what they got away with. And as we're going to talk about more in the next podcast, people who actually did stand up and speak out were vilified by them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... That's discussion for next week. But for this week, what I just kind of wanted to leave people with was the fact that we have this reputation as a very, even now, we still have a reputation as quite a religious country across um, the world. And we have always had that reputation, but it's actually becoming less less of our national identity now, I feel. Yeah. As Ireland liberalises, um, we're slowly peeling the cross off the tricolour, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Slowly but surely. But even now, we're still very much a socially Catholic country. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, and I think when you... Go on. Um, no, no, what are you going to say? Because my, my thought isn't completely formed. What are you going to say? Sorry for interrupting. Well, I was just going to say that, like... That's how, how did we get there? Well, we got there because of we got there because of the intertwining between the nationalistic identity and the Catholic identity. Mm-hmm. That to be Irish was to be Catholic, and there was no other way really. Mm-hmm. That 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 became our international image, um, and it became an image that we very much turned inside and accepted like we had some of the highest mass attendance in the world before the the 1990s you know mm-hmm. um and how did that happen that happened because of the the linking of the two identities the fire and brimstone martyr speeches from the pulpit and the allowing of a religious entity to take over our social um, social system and even now we're still having the same fucking argument mm-hmm. with the maternity hospital you yeah. know yeah which is the which is the you know the I no, what's the way which, which is the door yeah, to this whole conversation you know it's like uh, the National Maternity Hospital is currently being potentially going to be handed over to a religious order uh, which will restrict certain procedures and certain you know uh like it, it will you know we still don't have um stats about how many abortions are were being performed at St Vincent's Hospital in Dublin 
it's um it's very worrying and i think that um in order to understand i think we don't we don't look at the nuns as like a political force but they very much are especially now and it's hard and it, even more so in the past like yeah yeah but we don't conceptualize the them there. as a political thing you know what i mean it's like these are like I certainly don't myself anyway. I don't think like oh they're a political outfit, but they are a political outfit. Like they're a political outfit. Yeah, they're um, spread for them because their whole thing, not just them, but the priests too, was spreading their agenda, and their agenda was Catholicism. Yeah, it's an agenda, regardless yeah. of how they spread it, whether they spread it through fire and brimstone or through beating people up. It was still that's how they're spreading their agenda. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I would also, like to thank everybody for one. Oh, I just wanted to say, you know, the because uh, you're going to say our reputation, and I thought you were going to say as um as fighters, you know, the fighting Irish, uh, and and because I realized in the last couple of years, like that's a projection. The fighting Irish is a complete projection, and it's not actually the truth. <laughs> like if you look at our history, we are, uh, especially the most recent history, we're very much not the fighting Irish. And I also wanted to say that the the song Molly Malone was written in 1876. So the, you know, prostitution has been a very prominent feature of uh, um, Irish life and in Dublin, especially for a really long time. Um, So when you were talking about like, oh, they had a moral panic over prostitution in Dublin. um, And that's why they were, you know, talking about that's where they established the first one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I think that we're going to run out of time. Going to run out of time. Yeah, we're over so time. Thank you guys so much for listening. Yeah, and we'll be back in a few weeks with the second part of this, where we'll be discussing. Say that again. So thank you so much for listening, guys. And in the next podcast, in the next few weeks, we'll be discussing kind of how did they get their money, what happened to all that money, um. Were they really selling babies? Spoiler alert. Yes, they were. (laughs) And um, how did it all finally come crashing down Mm -hmm. for the religious orders in Ireland? Yeah. To Yarrow for a baby. To Yarrow for a baby. All right. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. Um, Thanks so much for listening, guys. We'll talk to you soon. Bye.